I became a Christian some uh, 40, 41 years ago. And after becoming converted, I began to kind of seek out people that I grew up with that I uh, knew or suspected were Christians. And, uh, and I had gotten saved uh, through the, uh, the ministry of a church that basically was uh, a, a, a new church, an independent evangelical church. For, so I had knew very little about various church traditions. And one of the people I sought out was one of those people called a Presbyterian. And, uh, and I, and I, and I remember meeting with her and I saying, now, now tell me, what do Presbyterians believe? Like, what is like the big doctrine? And she said, well, one of the big things that we believe is that God chooses you. You don't choose God. And I remember I laughed. I said, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. That's just plain silly. And she was very gracious about it. And, uh, and then, you know, over time, uh, uh, over, you know, a good bit of time, I eventually got to the point where I recognized that that is indeed what Scripture teaches. And that's going to be our big uh, topic this morning, the doctrine of election, because the Apostle Paul really emphasizes that as he's beginning his letter to the Thessalonians, reminding them that God has lavished grace on them because of his great love for them. So we're going to uh, un un unlock some of the wonders of this doctrine of election this morning as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and just verses 4 and 5 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to you and we pray, God, that you would give us hearts to understand and minds to be able to discern your holy truth. I pray, Lord God, that we would have an honest assessment of your holy word and that we would look at what does the message say, what was the intent of the author and not come in with all of our predispositions to believe something or not to believe something. In humility, we look to your word and we ask God that you would bless us and that you would encourage us, God. What an amazing thing to think about the grace of God. Lord, we as Christians never, ever tire of looking at your great grace, your great mercies, and your wonderful, wonderful providential ordering of our lives. So bless us now, we pray, and embolden our faith as we unmind the depths of your precious word. In Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. And you'll notice as we start off this uh, series in Thessalonians, we're probably going kind of slow, uh, maybe one or two verses at a time. But that part of that is because they're just so packed with wonderful doctrinal truths. Uh, and I'm going to read the verses to the entirety, and I'll tell you how we're going to approach of the sermon this morning. So first of all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, uh, God says, the apostle Paul writes, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you, for your sake. As we look at this, we're going to look at three different sections, and you will find your home group's help insert of benefit here. Uh, we designed that for the home groups to be able to continue conversation about the sermon. It's also designed for you to be able to have personal or family devotions and kind of follow up to kind of uh, go back over the sermon in your mind so you can kind of catch some of the points. But well, first of all, in verse four, we'll see that God is choosing you. And we'll see the scriptural evidence, the theological summary, and the common objections and biblical responses. Then we'll see God's means for choosing you in verse 5a, and then God's evidence of choosing you in verse 5b. 
So first of all, we see here God, uh, God's choosing you in verse 4. He says here, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, that participle knowing really modifies the main verb, we give thanks, back in verse 2. So Paul is talking about how grateful he is for this Thessalonian church. And you remember, if Paul went there, he shared the gospel with Thessalonians. Uh, 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 there was a lot of jealousy among the Jews in the city. They got a bunch of thugs from the from the uh, local market, and they began to drag some of the church leaders into court. Uh, and Paul had to leave in order not to endanger the church. So he left it kind of, he kind of felt like it was sort of half-hatched, that it was only, he'd only been there for a few uh, uh, weeks, maybe a couple of months, and he had to leave them. And he understood they were still going under persecution, and he, and he feared for them. But, but he's gotten a report that they're doing well, and he's just grateful. He is grateful, so he's giving thanks, and he's, and he's now trying to encourage them with why he can give thanks, because he, he knows that they are doing well, that their, their faith is a genuine faith. Listen, if you, make, if you surrender your life to Christ, uh, and then you, and it starts really getting difficult, a, a non-genuine Christian is just not going to hang in there. It begins to cost too much. But one of the things that the Holy Spirit tells us is that, that to become a Christian is to cost everything. Sometimes we're not testing that, but we very often are. So Paul is grateful that they are staying the course. Notice this, that he calls them brethren. He calls them brethren because we're members of one family. When God the Father adopts children, we become brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. Paul says this, gives this great principle of adoption in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. So what's one of the great emancipating truths of Holy Scripture is that you are not a slave to sin. You are not a slave to Satan. When you become a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the seal. That's the seal on the adoption papers. And you become a child of God. Well, that has both privileges and responsibilities, doesn't it? And that's part of what we'll, we'll look at here. He calls them, of course, brothers. It's so interesting. Paul, you can tell this is one of his just most intimate letters. He actually uses that kind of uh, uh, familiar term, brothers, uh, 14 times in this letter and eight times in Second Thessalonians. He is just overwhelmed with, uh, with gratitude about how well the Thessalonians are doing. And then he gives the text here, that, which is kind of the... the, the the, the emphasis on the sermon this morning, his choice of you. Of course, that, that word uh, uh, choice comes from uh, uh, eklekos, where we get the idea of election, doctrine of election. Uh, it means to be chosen or to have a divine uh, selection there. So the doctrine of election is a term that we like to use in our circle. Sometimes people will call it the doctrine of predestination, but that's just sort of part of the doctrine of election. So really, doctrine of election really would be the, uh, the emphasis here. So he, but notice this, that Paul joins these two principles here, and these two principles are important to connect here, of his choice for you, but also God's love, you beloved. So he's connection the, connecting the principles of God's love in this great electing choice. So first of all, let's look at the scriptural evidence. Now, you'll notice this amazing little handy guide to election that you'll find in your, your bulletin. This is not a, uh, an, an, uh, uh, a, a perfect document by any source. Basically, what I did is I cut out part of my sermon and pasted it on here, and Sarah made it, made it uh, with some nice fonts. Uh, so this is not a, 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 a bulletin that would be reprinted. But it's another one of those things I just think you ought to tuck in the back of your Bible because this issue comes up often, doesn't it? 
And people will give you a hard time about this issue. But I, but I want you to just notice these principles here. They're just verse after verse after verse, point after point after point, that will help you be able to just be encouraged yourself, but also to make a defense over this, this wonderful, wonderful doctrine. So again, this is basically uh, just some principles that, uh, that I'm going to point out here for you this morning. I am uh, el- uh, uh, grateful for Elder Jeff Carufi. We did a series this summer on the foundations of our faith, and unconditional election is one of the, uh, the principles that we looked at. So um, I, I, I actually, he had already done a lot of the research on many of these wonderful verses that you have here, so I want to uh, give him uh, uh, credit on that. So basically, as Paul is talking about this election principle, and he's reminding these, these former pagans, these were Zeus worshipers, they were Athena worshipers, uh, they, they, uh, they, they performed sacrifices or went to sacrifices for pagan gods, and now they're Christians. And Paul, again, as we have seen before, he's trying to make the connections. You are now part of the great promises that were given to Israel. And we see that uh, uh, in that first text that in your, your bulletin there, Deuteronomy chapter 7 here, when God is speaking about his people Israel. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you. Here's one of our principles, and that theme's going to keep coming up. To be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples around the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more number than all the peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out of the hand by the redemption from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh out of Egypt. Now, that that's text preaches God chose you not because you were so handsome not because you were so wealthy not because you were so powerful listen just about every other nation on the earth had better qualifications than the Jews the Jews were not winning beauty contests they were not the ones who were conquering Europe at the time but he chose them ample a light to the rest of the world so we see this all the way back to Abraham's calling in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, For the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be blessing. This is what you need. As we go through these verses, think who is the protagonist? Who is the one who is moving forward? Who is the one who's making all the moves here? And it's God. It's, it's entirely possible that at the time, Abraham was worshiping a moon god, just like everybody else in Babylon. And God came and said, I'm going to make this of you. I'm choosing you. I'm going to have you move somewhere. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. We see the same thing with the psalmist as they praise God in song about this wonderful choice of election of God. Uh, Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. Psalm 65, 4, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and of the holiness of your people. It's reflected, the same principle is reflected in the teachings of Jesus. John 60, uh, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. By the way, there's a lot of other verses. It's just that you know, eventually we do have to leave. (laughs) So I couldn't conclude them all. Um, And then we see this principle that was taught in the early church. Uh, Acts 13, 14. And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You catch that? 
The people who believed were those who were appointed ahead of time to believe. They basically did believe. From their standpoint, they were, they were making a choice. But the fact is that it had been appointed ahead of time. Then you see, of course, the, uh, a great emphasis from the Apostle Paul. Paul, Paul. Paul just couldn't get over this. Paul was a terrorist. He had probably killed Christians. And, and like a lot of us, he's sitting there thinking, why me, Lord? Why would you choose me? And because he knew, you didn't have to convince Paul. There was nothing in him that the Lord admired or wanted. He was a sinner. And yet, God chose him. So Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians are some of the wonderful uh, Romans, uh, others, Galatians. But Ephesians chapter 1, uh, th- verses 3 through 6 say this, Blessed be the... He just breaks into praise here. This is what being chosen ought to do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing blessing in the heavenly places. Just even as he chose us in him, when? When did he choose us in him? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and which he has uh, blessed us in the beloved. You really, could I stop there? Is that verse not sufficient enough to teach this doctrine of election? He predestined us to election before, before, not just before you were born, but before the world was even created. He had you in mind. Now that's love. That's commitment. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest of all Baptist ministers, said, it's a good thing he chose me before the foundation of the world or before I was born because he sure wouldn't have chosen me after I was born, you know. Don't you feel that way sometimes? We're grateful for that. And then Ephesians goes on in uh, chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to uh, 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 the purpose of him. He's the one that makes the choice. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's not getting advice. He's not even getting advice from you whether or not he chooses you. It's according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, just get your seatbelt on because we got more verses. First, Second uh, Timothy 1, 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, uh, surrendering your life in faith in the sense of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God's the one who had the purpose and the grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, let me tell you something. You do need to, in a sense, say the sinner's prayer. You need to recognize the fact that you're a sinner and you're in need of the Savior. There is a man's side to this saving grace. Uh, you know, so you, you, need, you need to surrender yourself. I don't know how, you know, you can use it a million terms, but you're recognizing what's happened. You don't have to have this doctrine completely down to be a Christian either. That's something else that needs to to, 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 uh, to be made. I mean, Paul says in Romans that you need to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You do need to do that. But that that's, can be done because of what's already happened in your heart. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm, we're going to look at Romans 9, and you're going to see that's probably the biggest block because literally, I, Paul, he's talking about Israel here, but he gives Romans 9 as an illustration of this idea of election and God choosing you. That's the reason why he's got Romans 9 in there. 
And one of the things I encourage people who question this doctrine, as I once questioned this doctrine, was I want you to read Romans 9, and I want you to put about all of, get rid of all of your ideas of American fairness and democracy and this kind of thing. And I want you to actually read and, and ask the question, what is Paul in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying to me? What is he actually saying? And that's what I had to do. I was forced to do this. We had a, we had a, a member in our church who was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventists are weak on this kind of doctrine, strong on rules, right? And she, she said, I just need to, I said, you go home, because we didn't have time to go through it together. You go home, and you read number, uh, uh, Romans 9, and you ask yourself this question after every verse. What is he saying? What is he saying? What is, and you summarize it. And she did. She came back. She goes, I get it. I get it. The lights went on. I get it. So listen to Romans 9, 10 through 16. And not only so, but also when Rachel goes back to Rachel, uh, back in Genesis, and conceived children by one man, her, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and hadn't done anything good and bad, but in order that God's purpose of election or choice might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls you. So uh, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For Scripture says of Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed on the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So he goes back to, the, he goes back to the, the birth of Jacob and Esau. And at the, but before they were even born, Jacob had been chosen, Esau had been rejected. Before they were even born. And he's pointing to that as an illustration of the doctrine of election. He also goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is an example. Moses was saved. Pharaoh is an example of someone who was not saved. He used Pharaoh's unrighteousness to show that he is a God of justice. He used the salvation of Moses and the people of God coming out of Egypt to show he is a God of grace. It keeps on going, Romans 9 through 19, well, uh, about this, um, the objections to this, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. You say, you say then, why does he still fall, fall, find fault? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What will, it, uh, 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 will what is molded say to the molder or the pot to the potter? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? You know, he, God is the one who is the God of creator. He's the one who sustains all things. He is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. This certainly is within the purview, purview of the rights of God to elect some to eternal life. Romans eleven five through 7, right, right again, Paul to the Romans. And in the same way then, there was also come to you at the present time a remnant according to what? God's gracious choice. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel was seeking, it was not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So even in the nation of Israel, which would be considered God's chosen nation, there were some in there that were chosen and some others that were not chosen, just like in the church. One of the richest missionary fields in America is in churches on Sundays. Because the number of unconverted people that, that are not genuine Christians go into church. 
Then we see that's Paul. Now we see the apostle Peter, uh, Peter, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He takes those wonderful titles from the Old Testament and associates them with Christians of the New Testament. And he reminds them again, you are a chosen race. What was the nation of Israel is now all believers. The Apostle John. So we've had Jesus, we've had Paul, we've had the early church, uh, we've had Peter. Now we have John in Revelation, Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the beast or Satan. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the, uh, of the, life of the Lamb who has been slain. So here he's talking about those people who are apostate or unbelievers who worship the devil, who worship the beast. But it doesn't include people who were chosen in God before the foundation of the earth. There's that reference again. God's choice occurred uh, in his mind in all eternity before earth actually existed. Now let's look at the theological summary I just have down here from the Westminster Confession of Faith. You could probably put the whole Westminster Confession of Faith in there. I chose just chapter 3, paragraph 5. Um, Those of mankind who were predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world has laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose. And the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will have chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his free grace and love alone without any foresight of faith or good works or uh, uh, perseverance in any of them or any other thing in the creature as the conditions or cause moving him thereom all to the praise of his glory God. In other words, what they're saying is God made a choice and he made that choice based on his love and his love alone. He did not see potential. He did not see potential. You ever bought a puppy? You ever bought a cat? If you like cats, I have 30 in my backyard. I'd love to have you come, come take one. Uh, you ever bought a puppy? What do you do? You pick out the one with the cutest personality, right? The one that follows you through the room or the one that seems to be most playful, the one that's the prettiest or whatever. You look for something, right? You know, that's not what God did. Matter of fact, he kind of picked the runt of the litter. No offense. And then we see common objections. This is important because you've heard all these. You might still even believe some of these, okay? So let's look at these objections. First of all, that just seems unfair, right? This seems unfair. Indeed, it does seem unfair. It seems unfair that God would choose some and not others. First of all, our fairness of uh, uh, what is fair is warped by the fall. Somehow, what is fair is what always benefits me the most. Right? Not me. I mean, you, you say that, not me, the pastor. So our notion is all what? Because of depravity here. Everyone deserves God's condemnation. So the question is not how come he chooses some and not others. It's how come he chooses any? We're born rebels against him. Why does he show gross, uh, uh, grace to anyone? But Paul anticipates this argument, so he kind of demolishes these objections in Romans chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still fall, fall, find fault? We read this, right? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You know, does the clay say something to the potter? That, By the way, that's a good, with all the struggles in your life, that's something good to remind, remember. You have a great potter who loves you, and sometimes he'll put a dent in that clay, right? But God, God has the right to do that. And who are we to question him? 
Paul doesn't go on anymore. I kind of wish he'd sort of filled that in a little bit more, but he just says, hey, listen, you know, if it's about God's glory, part of God's glory is his, uh, his mysterious will. All right, now we see here, um, election runs against man's free will. You hear that very often, okay? Now, Adam and Eve had free will. But when the fall came, that, that will was broken. You know, and, and, uh, and basically, they, they could choose God or not choose, but after the fall, everybody's chooser is broken, in a sense. Uh, and, and, and basically, unregenerate man will not and cannot believe onto salvation because we make choices according to our nature. Now, there was time in my life, even here in Anderson, um, where, where I probably could have run a marathon. I mean, I was training for a marathon. We were going to do the, uh, the Coxes, uh, Matthew Newell and Michael Cox. We're all going to go down to Kiowa and do this marathon. And uh, I ran from my house to Tim's Mill and back. And almost died, you know. But it took me, I think I slept for three hours that day. And, uh, and, and I, I probably could have done it. Today, it's not going to happen, all right? So I may want to run a marathon, but the legs are not going to do it. Well, our, your will is the same way. But the, the, the error with that presumption, too, is, uh, you know, is the, assuming that people will choose God. They will not. Have you checked the headlines lately? Have you seen what's going on in the world? People are in rebellion. It's amazing how the, the ba basic doctrines of Christianity are affirmed every time you check the headlines. All right, then you say, people say election leads to pride. Okay, oh, you're one of those frozen chosen. You're one of those, you think you're in this special club that God has chosen you. Actually, election promotes humility, not pride, because we actually believe God chose us. It's, if you believe you chose God is where the temptation to pride will be. Paul says in Romans 3, when he's talking about this, this truth, uh, God will be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is the boasting? He asked the question. What are you going to boast about? He says it's, it's excluded. It is excluded. Titus 3 says he has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing in the Holy Spirit. Now, like, there's plenty of folks in heaven who don't believe what we believe. But I'm telling you one thing. I am telling you, I hadn't been there. <laughs> but based on God's word, they don't believe that anymore. There is no one right now or will ever be in heaven walking around thinking, I chose this. Yep. Yeah, it's a good thing I was so godly. Those streets of gold, I mean, it was only 0.5%. But I chose, no, there's no one doing that. They might think they made, you know, and again, from their standpoint, they did make a choice and they, they, they need to make that commitment. But when they get there and they, they see the holiness, they understand just how sinful they were. They understand the blood of Jesus Christ and they look at what God has blessed them with. There's no boasting, folks. There's no boasting in heaven. We're all there because of what he did. Even if you don't believe that in this life. You don't have to believe this stuff to be a Christian, right? I wish I hadn't said this stuff. That kind of sort of kind of went down to a lower denominator there. This doctrine. All right, the other objection: election makes God the author of sin. James one says this: God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Okay, so God is not not he, he, basically He is allowing sinners to do what sinners want to do. He is not making them sin. 
then this is another big, and this, was, this is an objection that's real important in church history because this is the objection that Pelagius, the great foe of, of Orthodox Christianity, the great foe of Augustine, who was condemned in the councils of, uh, of, of Ephesus and of Carthage, uh, basically, this is what turned him off. He went to Rome, like Martin Luther did a, hundred, a, a thousand years after he did. He went to Rome and he saw how immoral people were in Rome, supposed Christians were in Rome, and that just offended him. So basically, the, the, the objection here is that election discourages holy living because your attitude is, hey, man, I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want. A Christian never, ever says that. A Christian never says that. Because if you really are under grace and you really are one of God's, you love God. And just like those of you who grew up with a loving mom and a loving daddy, you want to do things that please them. Okay? Or like your dog. That's the difference between dogs and cats, right? Your dogs want to please their masters. Cat plot, cats plot their overthrow. Throw. All right, so 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. Now notice that. He first loved us, so we, our love is a response. John 14, 15. If, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's how we demonstrate love. We keep commandments. 1 John 5, 3, for this is love of God that we keep his commandments. As Rick Phillips said, this teaching warrants the categorical statement that if you are not bearing evidence of holiness and then you do not desire to be holy, then you have no reason to believe that you're elect. If you are not walking in obedience, you're not seeking to be sanctified, you're not seeking uh, to, to do those things that are pleasing to God, you're just not a Christian. I mean, someone might have told you you were. You might have made the walk down the aisle, whatever. But that's the evidence. Now, does that mean that you're sinless? No. I mean, we make mistakes all the time, but we hate our sin, right? What, what was the emotion that went through your mind when we confessed our sins just a few minutes ago? Isn't it this, I can't believe I'm coming to you and saying this again. I hate my sin, but I love you. Will you please forgive me? That's, that's the point. So it doesn't discourage holy living, it encourages holy living. It, uh, election discourages evangelism. This is the one I hear the most. That, and I'll hear this from people with a, a gift of evangelism. They, they think the idea of election will discourage evangelism. It will discourage people from sharing the gospel with others because the idea is, hey, they're, they're, God's going to save them. We, they doesn't need me. Yes, he does. Because God is not going to just send an angel out of heaven to share the gospel. He's going to send you to share the gospel. And they will not get saved if he doesn't have that means to do so, which is actually part of the rest of the sermon as well. But I like what James Montgomery Boyce says. It is only election that gives us any hope of success as we evangelize. Boy, if I, had, if I, had, if I thought I had to stand up here on Sundays in my own strength and with my own intellectual prowess and with my own remarkable uh, ability to, to use words and never get tongue-tied and never get rabbit trail, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I wouldn't last a minute. But I have faith in God's word. I have faith in God's spirit. I also have faith in you. The same thing with evangelism. But we do, but we use these means. Uh, Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be, will be saved. But then he asks this question, how then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how will they believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The answer is they won't. They won't. So you got to evangelize. You need to evangelize. I think about the people who go on the mission field, if they... What, had, what ends up happening, if you don't believe God's the one that saves, you end up manipulating. You trick people. 
you work on their emotions. You, 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 you use lighting and music to kind of get them to a point of, 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 of surrendering their life to Christ. Some people legitimately get saved that way. But I just think it's dishonest. When we approach evangelism, we have a confidence. God's going to save some. He's not going to save others. But it's like Spurgeon would go say, you know, if I could just walk around the city of London and pull up people's shirts, shirts and, and it says on their chosen, I would just share the gospel with them. But guess what? We don't do that. And I think these days you get arrested for that. We don't know who's chosen. So you share the gospel with everybody. But listen to this argument. And I've heard this argument at least three times. I don't like the doctrine of election because it discourages missions, it discourages evangelism. Do you realize by saying that, that you're basing your doctrine on pragmatism? You're basically saying, I don't care what the Bible says. I just think that's a bad practice. You're getting it all backwards, friend, if that's your, your view. Then, of course, the other big objection, which is kind of the principle of Arminianism, uh, they, they might say, yeah, God's involved with salvation, uh, but, uh, but, he does, uh, he, but God saves you by looking to the future to see who chooses him, and then he chooses you. And they use Romans chapter 8, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. But that is a misunderstanding of what that principle of foreknew means. In Holy Scripture, especially if you go back to the Old Testament, knowing means love. Means love, means having a relationship. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more numbered than any other peoples, but the Lord set his love on you and shows you, for you are the fewest of all people. Amos 3, 2. For, I have no, for uh, you only I have known of all the families on the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Jeremiah 1, 4. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then Matt, Jesus teaches in Matthew 7. On that day, I will say to, they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, not cast out demons in your name, not do mighty works, of, works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then Romans eleven twelve, 12. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So again, this idea that, that, think about it, okay? So God looks to the future. By the way, there is no future for God. He lives in the eternal present. He makes the future. But he looks to the future and he finds out that Howard Cox is going to say the sinner's prayer, so he decides to choose Howard Cox. Who is the protagonist? Who is the aggressor there? Who is the one who's making the choice? It's still Howard Cox. That's clearly not the way Scripture reads this thing. It's that God is the one who is choosing you. A wonderful thought about this. I think they still require, they still require physical education, PE class in high school. Okay, I, I got to confess to you, and I, especially you athletes in the in the room, most of us really hated PE. We just hated PE. Because it always kind of benefited the athletes. They were all, the, the, the big guys on the football team, they knew the coach and everything. They were always the ones. That, and the rest of us just were not necessarily gifted in that particular area. Uh, but remember that, that, that situation, whether it was PE class or elementary school, where you, you're going to play dodgeball, you're going to play volleyball, you're going to play baseball, softball, whatever it is, polo, depending on the school you went to. Uh, and, and the team captains, and they're always the big guys on the team, the team captains get to pick your team, the team. I'll take Bill, I'll take Shirley, I'll take you know, and there you are at the end, 
like the leftovers from Thanksgiving, you know, pick me, you know, okay, well, you can just like, maybe if, if a ball rolls in the woods, we'll put you in the woods, you know, I read a book on this, uh, so, you know, that's an awkward situation, right, that's an awkward situation. It was a wonderful account, though, of, of a young man, that, that, that little boy that never got picked on the team, and he dreaded that situation. And then one day, two new athletes came onto the field, and they were made the two different captains, as always the case. And uh, this little boy was sitting there thinking, oh, no, here I go through this dread again of always being the last one to get picked, the leftover. And uh, the new team captain said, I'll take him. And he was the first one selected because the new team captain was his brother. His brother didn't pick him because he was the best. His brother picked him because he loved him. Because he loved him. And that's really what God is doing. If you were, let me summarize this. Quoting these verses, your salvation is appointed, Acts 13, according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, because of his own purpose, uh, 2 Timothy 1, depends not on human will or exertion, Romans chapter 9, and is according to God's gracious choice, Romans 11, and was written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb of Life, Revelation 13. And again, this is not all the verses. So let the... Word of God, not return void. If you don't embrace this, please consider what these verses are saying. If you do embrace this, just fall in love with God all over again. That he has chosen you. Now let's look at God's means for choosing. How does he do this? I've already mentioned this in some ways, but he, he kind of lays it out for us in chapter, I mean, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and uh, full conviction. So the, it, it didn't come in word only, which means, of course, that it came to you in word, but not by itself. So first of all, it comes to us by the word. There's two sides of this, the teaching of the word of God. You see this in Acts chapter 17, when Paul planted this church in Thessalonia. He said he went to them on three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again uh, from the dead. So he preached to them. That's what you do is you read, look at the word and then you explain what it means. And there's the receiving the word. You keep on going Acts chapter 17. After Paul got run out of Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. And it said that of the Bereans, they received the word with great earnestness, examining the scriptures daily. You cannot be lazy when it comes to Christianity. You need to be a reader. And whatever you read, you need to pass on to other people. And I mentioned in, the, in this uh, beginning uh, that you ought to pass these sermons on to other people that could be benefited from this. So, uh, that, but it's not just the word. It starts with the word. It's got to be the word. But it's also in power. The gospel comes with power. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, uh, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is one of my big beefs. Well, I have two big beefs with liberalism. Many of us, were, uh, you know, the church I was raised in is a mainline liberal church. It is, it's, it's about a third the number uh, than it was back in the 1960s because of all of its compromise and its apostasy. It's become sort of a social justice thing. They don't preach the gospel anymore. But my beasts with liberalism are, 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 first of all, that basically it's anti-supernatural. They just don't believe God actually does what God actually does. They, they deny its power. They deny its power. They're very uncomfortable with miracles. They like the little social justice statements that you ought to look after the poor and that kind of thing. 
But the idea that Jesus walked on water, you know, oh, he didn't do that. He must have had some kind of a, you know, a, a, what was it, the feeding of the 5,000? Remember, we looked at that in the book of Mark. The, 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 the big theory is that there was a hidden cave. And as Jesus was pretending to break the bread, the disciples were passing up the loaves and the fish and everything. 5,000 people ate loaves and fish, passed up through a secret hole in the... That takes more faith than believing he actually created the bread and the fish. But that's, that, that's very typical. The other one is, not just is, do they, do they uh, are anti-supernatural, they also have no confidence in the word of God. And that's one of my beasts with all the churches that are out there manipulating you uh, all the time. It just shows they have a lack of confidence in, by, uh, confidence in God's word. So anyway, you've got this word, you've got the word, you've also got the power that comes with the word and in the Holy Spirit. That's really the deal. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, that's when everything changes. That's when you can choose God. And not really until then, although you could be wooed towards God uh, uh, by his providential care here. Now, so now Paul has already mentioned God the Father. He's already mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a very Trinitarian view here. You might put a little triangle in your Bible there. It's a, another defense of the Trinity here. But he, so he mentions that the ministry here of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the one that applies these truths, applies the blood of Jesus Christ sent from God the Father to you. Now, he, again, we have one God with three persons, uh, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, but they have different roles. Irenaeus, the second century church father, is one of the first ones to kind of mention this. But we, today we call it economic Trinitarianism. The, 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 the three members of the Trinity do different things, okay? So God the Father chooses you for salvation. He says, his choice of you, back on our verse uh, four there. God the Son secures that salvation. First Thessalonians will go on to say that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. And then God the Spirit applies that salvation, in, as it says here, and in the Holy Spirit. John 6, uh, 63 says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit gives life. Westminster Confession says, how many persons are in the Godhead? The answer in question 9 there are three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one, true, eternal God, the same substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. And what was the result? Well, they was, the result was with full conviction here. The, the, the word was effectual. The Spirit applied it, and they, and they had full conviction. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this is where most people fail the test. They might hear scripture. They might go to a Bible study. They might hear somebody on TV. They just don't accept it. They don't believe it because the spirit hasn't changed them yet. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he's talking to the Thessalonians. He's talking to his brethren. He is addressing Christians who are spiritually appraised, who do believe the word of God. And they've seen this wonderful experience. And he kind of goes back to this experience we're talking about. He's talking about the experience of the Thessalonians, but he's also talking about the experience of himself, Silas, and Timothy when they were preaching. They were preaching with power. And that, and that the Spirit was working through that preaching when they came and, and taught them. They taught with conviction you got to believe this stuff. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to lose the argument. People want to see, do you, really, are you really, do you really believe what it is that you're teaching here? And we have our doubts at times, don't we? We struggle at times. That's why you got to fill your mind with these things. That's why you got to pull out that little insert from your Bible 
uh, from time to time and think about this. Let me see God's evidence of his choosing you in verse 5b. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul is going back. He's about to set up in chapter 2. He's going to talk about what they were like when they were with the Thessalonian church. So he's sort of setting that up. And then give you some of the examples. This is the kind of people Paul was like for the Thessalonians. So they're not hypocrites. I mean, Paul will tell you he's a sinner. Silas, Timothy would tell you they're sinners. But, but in general, they, were, they behaved differently than all the pagans that were around them. There was some, something special about their walk with Christ that people could see. They could see in the choices they made. They could see in the self-sacrificial love and leadership that they had. So in, as we get on to this, uh, probably in three weeks, Second uh, Thessalonians 2, Paul says they had suffered, that there was boldness to speak, that they did not come to them in error and punity. They were not pleasing men but God. They were not seeking to glorify men but seeking to glorify God. They were like a nursing mother who tender cares for their children. They would walk devoutly and upright and blamelessly and that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what you need to do. One reason why people are not hearing your message is because your life just disqualifies it. So what is it in our life that could be disqualifying our message? But Paul, is we want to be able to have that same kind of confidence. Look at me and look at the other people you know. Do you see a difference in my life? Do you see a difference in my life? By the way, I'm flawed. I'm deeply flawed. But going back to 2 Corinthians, power is perfected in weakness. But when I do sin, I ask for forgiveness. And I seek not to be uh, harbor bitterness and, and that kind of thing. F.F. Bruce uh, says, and basically, the gospel ought to be evident in your life. While the act of election took place in God's eternal counsel, it affects or also seen the lives of the elect as they were seen in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. Uh, James says, faith without works is dead. So there's an emphasis here, not on legalism, Legalism is wrong. Legalism is adding to Scripture. Legalism is saying you get saved by good works. But on lawfulness, living in lawfulness, because we love Christ, we keep His commandments. A great illustration of this. Some of y'all know uh, Pastor Bowers, who was the pastor at Christ Church in Columbia. He was a, an attorney for years, uh, had a lot of real estate holdings and stuff. He actually was the head of the South Carolina Democratic Party and got saved in his, in his late 30s. Uh, but Henry Blackaby writes, and you know, he's got those famous Experiencing God book. He also has a book called Experiencing the Holy Spirit. And he has this testimony in this book that, uh, that there was a business meeting going on, and Debt Bowers was in this business meeting, and there was an opportunity for Debt Bowers just to go for the jugular in this meeting and, uh, and really take these people uh, and clean their clock in this meeting, and he refused to do it. And he walked out of the conflict and out of the meeting, even leaving some money on the table. And his business party, uh, partner, Cubby Culbertson, saw that, saw the way he changed, had known about his recent conversion, walked into his office and surrendered his life to Christ. And his thought was, if you could take an aggressive attorney and a man who liked money, like Debt Bowers, then God can do anything. And Cubby Culbertson, I want some of that Jesus. I want some of that Jesus. That, that ought to be our testimony as well. There's, a, there's something different about it. There's something about, different about the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, uh, the way we interact with people, the ha way our house looks. There's just a difference uh, in where our hope is and our joy and our confidence. But God gets the glory, so that's why he calls flawed men into the church and women into the church and flawed men into the pulpits of his churches. 
<clears throat> so we ought to live in such a way as to have this confidence. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and greatly towards you. So that's a quick summary. Uh, uh, it's probably not as quick as maybe you would have liked, but um, you wouldn't know. You can't imagine the verses I kept out. But I want you to have this, this, this view, and I want you to have some of these verses down on paper so that you can go back and kind of uh, revisit some of these thoughts and, and become convinced of them. Because I'm telling you, the more you embrace this doctrine, I, I just believe the, the, the more dynamic your Christian life is going to be. You, it, it happens almost every week with me where I am just sitting there studying scriptures and I'm just dumbfounded that God saved me. There was a time when I laughed at the doctrine of election. Now I cry when I think about the doctrine of election. For some reason, unknown to me, only known to God, in 1981, when there were 4.5 billion people on planet Earth, God came down to Clemson University, bypassed all these other people, went into Wanamaker Hall on the first floor, and saved my soul chose me in him, filled me with the Holy Spirit. He passed by much better students, much better athletes, much more popular people, much better looking people than me. And I know that. And now when I think about him doing that, and here I am, the guy that laughed at the doctrine of election, spending 50 minutes telling you about it. Folks, that's a miracle. And that's the kind of miracle that just makes us adore God all the more. Let it be so. Father, we do turn to you and we thank you for your great grace. Lord, we are that kid on the team that never got picked. But out of your great love, you chose us and we bless you for it. Give us hearts to accept it and minds to understand it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.